Patriots, welcome back to another episode of the Growing Patriot Podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Hamilton. Things are happening pretty quickly on the road to revolution right now, and the first shot has even been fired. Representatives or delegates from all of the 13 colonies were meeting in Philadelphia too on a second Continental Congress, and this week we're going to find out how that went. Hi, my name is, is Luke. I live in Boonesboro, Maryland. I am nine years old. Also, I have three questions. This is my first question. Were there new members in the Second Continental Congress? What, were, what are the differences between the First and Second Continental Congress? This is my second question. Was George Washington the commander of the army and was the army formed in the First or Second Continental Congress? Number th- three, D- did each colony participate in the Second Continental Congress? Those are such great questions, Luke. Let's talk with our expert and get the answers. My name is Dr. Sarah Giorgini. I'm the series editor for the papers of John Adams, which is part of the Adams Papers Editorial Project. We're based at the Massachusetts Historical Society in Boston. And basically, my job is to read other people's mail for a living. (laughs) So we get to read, transcribe, annotate, and publish the public and private letters of John and Abigail Adams and their descendants, about a quarter of a million manuscript pages, oh which you gosh. can read online for free in our digital editions. That sounds like a really exciting job. And I know that um, John Adams and Abigail Adams were some prolific letter writers. They wrote a lot of letters. They sure were. I really wish that they had texting them because I think <laughs> they would have been great to read their text back and forth. But a lot of what we know about early American life and culture, even what happens at the Continental Congress, we know thanks to John and Abigail's letters. So I'm excited to share a little bit of that with all of you. So let me ask you a silly question. If there were texting Mm -hmm. then, what do you think John Adams' favorite emoji would have been? Oh, it absolutely would have to be the little emoji with the double hearts for eyes. Oh. my dearest friend. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. He would have been texting love emojis to his wife. That's perfect. <laughs> I think you're right. Well, okay, let's jump into the questions we have for this week. So, um, you know, we've been talking about the First Continental Congress and the shot heard around the world, and we also mm-hmm. now are moving into the Second Continental Congress. So how were those two important meetings different? This is a great question, and it's something scholars think about a lot. So first, I'd encourage you all to think about why we needed a Continental Congress at all. So if you want to start a revolution, then you need a gathering place for people to get together and have face-to-face conversations about what happens next. And essentially, this was the Continental Congress, which grew into the nation's first government. So between 1774 In 1789, the two Continental Congresses coordinated American resistance to British rule, but they also struggled to really balance 
the political and economic needs of very different regions. This is going to be the governing body that goes on to draft the Articles of Confederation that raises foreign money and troops to fight in the revolution. So declaring independence was a big achievement, but it was just the beginning of our national story. Massachusetts delegate John Adams gave us a really great metaphor, I think, for how hard won that measure was. He said it was like 13 clocks striking at once. Oh, wow. Pretty loud and exciting to imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, so how'd they even pull that off, right? right? So the first Congress met in Philadelphia from about September 5th to October 26th, 1774. Connecticut was the first to select delegates and all the other 13 colonies, except Georgia, quickly followed. And their goal was to discuss plans to boycott British goods. This was in response to a series of intolerable acts, as they were called, that tells you what Americans thought of them. They were intolerable, couldn't mm -hmm. stand them. That Parliament passed, which placed heavy taxes on those imports. And this might seem like a really short session, right? Less than two months. But that first Continental Congress got a lot done. So first, they rallied a really impressive set of colonial lawmakers and intellectuals to their cause. And they put them in those face-to-face -face conversations. Suddenly, you had Virginia delegates like Thomas Jefferson face-to-face -face sitting down with Massachusetts delegates like John Adams. You had different parts of the country coming together to talk about the revolution. Second, they approved that boycott on British goods unless the intolerable acts were repealed. And third, and this is really important, they told the world about it. So even though their proceedings were kept under wraps, they were super secret, um, the congressional delegates sent messages to the colonies and to Canada about their actions. And fourth, they made an effort to reach out to King George III of Britain. They sent him a list of grievances or wrongs that they felt could be righted or addressed as a way of avoiding an all-out war. They didn't send a petition to Parliament since they thought the colonial unrest um, and the agitation and the protests would kind of die down in cities like Boston. It would blow over. So instead, the delegates planned to meet again in May 1775, and many went home thinking the matter was, you know, somewhat settled. So now we come to your question of the Second Continental Congress. As we know, in that period, in those, those months in between, the revolutionary activities and events in major cities changed rapidly. So when the Second Continental Congress reunited in Philadelphia, the Revolutionary War was already underway. That Second Continental Congress met from May 10, 1775 to March 1, 1781. Big stretch of time there, right? It's a lot different than the First Continental Congress. It's a lot more serious about building a government. So this is the period when the Second Continental Congress um, drafts and has ratified the Articles of Confederation that establishes a new national government. Um, that's something that holds until about March of 1789, when we have a U.S. Constitution taking effect. And the other thing to remember about the Second Continental Congress is that we are now a nation at war. So by the end of 1775, Parliament had banned trade with the American colonies and allowed this 
seizure, the taking of American vessels. So the Second Continental Congress, they're a little feisty. They're a little spicy. They fight back in April 1776 by blocking British ships from all ports. Any other foreign ship is fine, not a British ship. So with France as a potential ally, American revolutionaries turn from what we think of as a trade war to a real military war. And for that next step, the Second Continental Congress badly needed an experienced general to lead the kind of hastily thrown together Continental Army, which they formed in mid-June 1775. And I think this brings us to the next question. It certainly um, does. <laughs> about Washington. Yes. Yep. How did they come to, to form an army and how did George Washington come to be in charge of it? This is a great question because we often can do a lot more thinking about how we create these national institutions and the first people who step into these leadership roles because it's certainly not easy. One of the first things that American revolutionaries realize is that they are going up against the best army and navy in the world, the British Army mm -hmm. and the British Navy, and they really need something solid to pull together the very scrappy militias that have emerged, these kind of voluntary fighters who have emerged, mostly in New England, some in Virginia, some in the Mid-Atlantic in Pennsylvania and New York, kind of freeform, ragtag armies of their own with no clear leadership, no real uniforms, not a lot of training, and here's something, not a lot of decent equipment and arms. Mm -hmm. So, most delegates at the Second Continental Congress favored George Washington of Virginia. For one thing, he's extremely qualified. Two, he's already there. He's serving on several committees and offering his expertise, his years of knowledge in um, combat that he's accrued as a veteran of the Seven Years' War. He's a natural choice to do this. And in fact, Washington was the unanimous pick of the Continental Congress to lead those militia forces that were gathering. And you can see his commission from the Continental Congress. It's online, thanks to the Library of Congress. And if you scoot over from there to the Mount Vernon website, there's a wonderful kind of retelling of this moment in his life. He barely takes a day to think it over. He immediately signs on to do it. And this choice of George Washington was a really smart political choice on Congress's part. Because before this kind of moment of the military war taking hold in the Continental Congress's mindset, there were a lot of people who thought, you know, this is a New England problem. This is a Boston problem. Their port being shut down, them losing money from trade, it doesn't affect us maybe in the Mid-Atlantic or the South. But signing on George Washington demonstrated that revolutionaries were united north and south in the cause for American liberty. This is really effective messaging to send to the British. I would point out just as a kind of fun fact about George Washington, who once very badly as a young man when he was a surveyor also sought to join the British Navy and his mother moved quickly against that idea. Um, he always thought of himself as someone with British Army training. And that's an incredibly powerful thing to go into the battlefield with. Mm -hmm. The British also knew of him. He was that rare thing, a well-known American military <laughs> leader in the world. 
And this certainly sent a very strong message to the British about how serious American revolutionaries were as we transitioned from fighting over boycotts and trade and goods to actually fighting in the field. Sure. And you mentioned that this was a unanimous decision and it was something that united the colonies together, north and south, and everything in between. And so that actually kind of leads us to his other two questions, which were, were, did all the colonies participate? I know Georgia wasn't there at the beginning, you mentioned. And also, who, just in general, who was there? Were we looking at the same people that came to the first Continental Congress, who then came back to discuss the issues again? Or is this a different set of people? I really love this question, but to get to the changing nature of early American politics and how we select delegates. So when we're thinking about um, the people in the room where it happened, right? So how the first and the second Continental Congress were different. Well, by the time that the second Continental Congress voted on Richard Henry Lee's landmark resolution for independence in 1776, by that moment, every colony was represented. And certainly, yes, the members changed over a bit due to age, due to changing political affiliations for any number of reasons. Um, but when we look at those first two Congresses, I think this is important to remember too, they had very different goals. So the first Congress was very focused on the economic aspects of the conflict, of thinking about the trade war with Britain. And to a degree, you see that in the way that the members talk to each other. They were also really interested in reconciliation, like how can we find a peaceful path to tame this conflict? How can we stop this from being an all-out war? By a very sharp contrast, the Second Continental Congress was already a government at war. And the kinds of conversations that the delegates had and the letters that they sent home, which you can read online, they're very open to thinking creatively about how to manage troops and money in addition to making domestic and foreign policy. And I think when you're, you're Considering these two Congresses next to each other, like imagine if it was a book and one page is about the first Continental Congress and the other is a portrait of the second Continental Congress, how those two portraits would look different. Mm -hmm. The second one is really engaged in how to build a government. So rather than saving the relationship with Britain, Britain is now out of the picture. The delegates are thinking as hard as they can about how to create a federal government from scratch. And I really think the delegates at the Second Continental Congress, they are a little bit freer in their conversations. So I mentioned that I get to read people's mail for a living. And one of the pleasures of that is trying to figure out if they're giving me the whole story or not. And in the First Continental Congress, a lot of the members, when they're writing home to their wives, to women like Abigail Adams, or to other constituencies, voters, people who have selected them for this job, they are a little careful, right? Because they're openly being treasonous against the British government. It's a very dangerous thing, that First Continental Congress. It is. Even when they're on the road to it, they're really nervous that every tavern they stop and stay in, that something bad is going to happen if anyone finds out where they're headed. Mm -hmm. By the time we get into the Second Continental Congress, the interesting thing about the members who are in it is that they have really found their political voices. They are interested in running a country. I think that's a, a huge difference because they see something 
that we see when we study this First and Second Continental Congress, which is how we understand the big story of the 18th century when we think about American history. It's a turning point when power moved from kings and queens to we, the people. That is the big shift. And I find that the membership of the Second Continental Congress is way more open and creative in talking about that than the first. Okay. Yeah, that's, it was, it's a, like you said, a very big, different goals, a big switch. Um, so, so how did, how did Georgia come to participate with, since they weren't there in the beginning? They eventually sign on. <laughs> I mean, Georgia has a different political landscape in some ways, and they also have very close ties to British trade. Mm -hmm. So there's a good reason not to show up if you're trying to save your local economy. Um, that's certainly something that's on their minds, I think. Yes, they eventually decided that it was time to join together and be, be one United States. Yeah, I think that's the way it works. I mean, a lot of the story of the Continental Congress, both the first and second, is to create that central place for everyone to come to and talk about first the revolution and then how to build a government. And increasingly seeing all of their neighbors go and do that certainly swayed Georgia sure. <laughs> to a great degree. Sure. Yeah, because it's, it's easy for us looking back sometimes to forget that these were 13 separate colonies. Not, you know, it was very different from what we, what we have now. They necess didn't necessarily see themselves as, as having much in common with each other. And, and this is when they, when they became one. Exactly. It's a, it's a great sort of surprise story that they pull off here. No one really had a great precedent for how to do this. Mm -hmm. It is, as they say, a great improvisation, something they're trying wildly for the first time to see if it sticks. And that energy and that excitement, I think, is what propels them. The Continental Congress, first and second, legitimates the cause. It says, Here's a bunch of super smart people who care about democracy and the well-being of this nation before it's even a nation. And we're going to come together and talk about how to be a union. And that's, that's really something that, you know, they're, they're not just revolutionaries with a bunch of talk. They are actually interested in taking action. That really legitimates them in the eyes of the world. It's what convinces France to send money and troops it's what convinces the Netherlands to sign on as well with money. And it's really something that impacts the world view of the British Empire as well. So it's a really important moment. If you didn't have some kind of Continental Congress, you would not have a good base to launch this revolution from and sustain it. Yes. You mentioned that this was quite a surprise. What other, what other surprises came up? Any little lesser known stories? Anything sort of fun that happened? <laughs> hmm, let's see. Um, I have to say on the, on the front of how members mixed and mingled, I find this absolutely fascinating. I know there's been recent scholarship done by Christopher Minty and others on what it was like for members to travel to and fro, mm -hmm. because you have to remember a lot of these delegates had never really left their neighborhoods that much or even their native state. 
And so this is the first time they're really kind of seeing the world and the world is America. This yeah. is a whole new thing they're experiencing. So you get a lot of different perspectives. John Adams certainly falls hard for Philadelphia. He loves the city and its cultural scene and its clergy. Mm-hmm. He experiments with different cultural outlets, institutions. He's very into seeing everything he can see whenever possible. And a lot of the delegates do this as well, and they send back really kind of rich descriptions of Philadelphia and other places that they encounter along the road or people. Sometimes, in John Adams' case, these letters unfortunately get intercepted and printed. And because they're not always the most flattering accounts, um, he sometimes gets in a little bit of trouble for, I don't know, talking behind people's backs when he shouldn't have. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but, so it's, it's also a story of people learning how to work together in a government. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really interesting to see that dynamic, I think, in the early stages. So I'm, I'm always on top of like, oh, what did he say about John Dickinson this time? You know, <laughs> interesting. And then the second thing I'd say that's not surprising but worth knowing is that, you know, there's a very secretive approach to this Continental Congress. Right? They have to be somewhat secret. When you're plotting something like this, right. you can't splash all over the newspapers. So a lot of what we know about the Congress comes from John Adams' letters and diary, his notes on debate. It comes from the letters of delegates that are sent home. What would the American people have known about this is a really good question because you would not see these proceedings really printed for some time. In fact, what's called the secret journals of the Continental Congress, which are a little more detailed, mm-hmm. they don't come out in publication for people to read until 1821. Oh, gosh. So a lot of what people are learning is kind of word of mouth. You've got to go to people's letters. You've got to look in their diaries. And you have to remember that these kind of roads of correspondence these letters that people are trading, they go in both directions. It's a two-way street of exchange. So some of the most interesting letters that I like to read are Abigail's to John while Mm -hmm. he's at the Continental Congress. Because she's telling him what life is like in Boston. She's telling him how people in New England are dealing with these parliamentary actions. And her intelligence is really good. She absolutely is able to help him influence and shape policy there. So thinking about that two-way street, like the delegates and who they're writing to and who they're hearing from Mm -hmm. is a really useful kind of thing that we like to think about as historians, right? What are all the voices in a congressman's head when he votes in this period? That's really interesting to think about because you think of that noisy 13 clock striking at once. They've got all those voices in their head. How did they choose what to listen to and how to act at such a critical moment? So not surprising, but exciting to read. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, it sounds like you have such a fun job. (laughs) I do, I do. I'd encourage everyone to check out our digital editions so you can kind of read them for free. And you'll also get a cool sense of what 18th century life is like whether it's on a farm in Massachusetts or it's at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia or later on in New York City 
um, with Alexander Hamilton right now and all of his friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gosh, it's it's just it's such an exciting time with so many things happening all at once that, like you said, it all just comes together for something really special. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a wonderful look at the Second Continental Congress. Thank you so much, Amelia. Wasn't that great? It's so exciting to hear how our country is coming together. So let's talk about what we learned in this big episode. The Continental Congresses were really a place for people to gather and talk about what happens next. A place where they could all coordinate working together to resist the British government while also trying to make sure that all of the different colonies and different regions had what they needed. They were working together to make sure that they had enough money and troops to win a war. And we were at war by this point, so it was much more serious than the First Continental Congress. The First Continental Congress was all about discussing trade, British goods being shipped here, us shipping to them, and all of the taxes on it. But now, we're really fighting back. We're not just blocking British ships, we're in a real war now, and we needed a leader. Good thing George Washington was there. When you're going up against the best military in the world, you better have a good leader. Now we had militias at the time. Those were groups of people that got together to protect their areas. But that wasn't the same as having an organized military. George Washington had been trained by the British military, so he knew how to fight and how they would fight. But it wasn't just his qualifications that made him the perfect choice to be the new general. He was also from Virginia. Most of the problems had been in New England and the Boston area, and a lot of colonies felt like that was really their problem, and they didn't want to get involved. But having George Washington leading the army and being from Virginia meant that we were uniting, we were standing together as colonies. The British military also knew George Washington, so they knew that we were serious when we got a real leader like that. He was just one delegate or member of that Second Continental Congress. There were a lot of people there, and it wasn't all the same people as the First Continental Congress. Some of that was because people were maybe too old to go this time or had been too young the first time, or for a lot of different reasons. But one reason for the difference in membership was that there were different goals in the Continental Congresses. Like we said in the first one, it was more of a trade war, and they really wanted peace with Britain. They wanted to figure out a way to move forward as a British colony. But in this one, we were a government at war, and they were trying to figure out how to win that war and what kind of country we were going to be after independence. That also means that these delegates could speak a little more freely. In both Congresses, they're technically committing treason against the British government, and that is a major, major crime. 
In the first one, they had to be a little quieter about it because we hadn't been talking about independence. We were still trying to create peace with Britain, so we didn't want to upset them by openly committing treason. In the second Continental Congress, however, we were at war. It was an entirely different thing, and the delegates could speak freely about wanting independence and what they They were trying something totally new for the first time. These were really smart people having great, important, thoughtful conversations. And that made countries like France and Holland more willing to support us in independence. But it also made people look at the whole British Empire differently. If America could fight back, could anyone? Could anyone tell their government that they had a voice that deserved to be heard? These were big ideas at the time that hadn't really been considered before, and it's a very big deal. Out of this experiment, they called it, came something really, really special, a free country that was going to take charge of its own future. But first, they had to win the war, and they had to win that independence from Britain. So next time, we're going to talk all about how the military was formed and how they got ready to be an independent country. Can't wait to talk to you next time. Remember to visit growingpatriots.com to listen to this episode and every other episode, where you'll also find lots of resources like videos and coloring pages, and we'll have links to all of those wonderful things that Dr. Sarah talked about. There, you'll also find the Growing Patriots books. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Growing Patriots. Be sure to share this episode with a couple of friends that you think would love it, and I can't wait to talk to you next time. Bye! us all from tyranny, we stand for things for liberty, and they fought so weird.